Hello, and thank you for listening to this latest installment of our Unsolved podcast. I'm David Lydon. This month, we're diving into a case from 32 years ago near Houghton Lake. John Skamelko was spending the day fishing at the Reedsburg Dam back on July 19th of 1989. But around 4 that afternoon, state police got a call about a man who was found unresponsive at the dam. When troopers and EMS got there, they found John had been shot and killed. Detective Sergeant Doug Bauman is the fourth detective to work on this case, now considered cold. I sat down with him at the state police post in Cadillac, and he brought us up to speed on the investigation. Take me back to July 19th, 1989. So it was, uh, you know, summer of 89, uh, Reedsburg Dam in Roscommon County there. Uh, a uh, citizen had shown up at the state police post there uh, to report uh, a gentleman uh, that was uh, unresponsive next to his truck by the dam, uh, believed to be in a medical emergency heart attack. And so the EMS were summoned to uh, the Reedsburg Dam area, uh, found the gentleman, and uh, realized that it uh, pretty quickly it wasn't a heart attack that he was suffering from, and uh, requested the state police come out and investigate. Uh, it was about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Uh, troopers arrived on scene and uh, realized that uh, it was a homicide scene, in fact, and some of the detectives to start the investigation from there. And you said it, it appeared he was shot. It did, yep. Uh, after the EMTs had uh, went to work on uh, Mr. Skamelka there, uh, they realized that uh, it wasn't a heart attack, and in fact, it appeared uh, that he had been shot. And there were kind of clues there at the scene that this hadn't happened long before detectives got there. Correct, yep. Uh, when they arrived on scene, uh, they noticed that a uh, can of worms for the fishing uh, were still open. Uh, there was a five-gallon bucket with uh, fresh water and a, and a fish in it still swimming around alive. You know, obviously had uh, just pulled it out of the river there, or the dam, and uh, fishing poles were still set out. It looked like maybe he was either uh, getting ready to uh, break camp or, or continue fishing as some of the fishing poles were packed up. Some of them were still being out. Tackle box was there. Like I said, top was off the worms. Uh, it was, by all means, was still an active, you know, fishing spot for him. Detectives did find some clues at the scene that pointed to a possible motive. After they started the investigation, they did uh, notice that his wallet was missing uh, at the time um, of the incident. Yeah. And so is that kind of the motive you guys have been working with for the it, last 30-some years as it was some kind of robbery it does i think that's the you know we're looking at uh, almost 32 years here coming up on july 19th uh, of uh, it happened uh, probably the fourth or fifth detective at least that's taken this case on it was reopened in 2013 as a cold case by one of our former detectives who's now retired she took it on and really delved into uh, kind of aspects that we can uh, refresh, if you will, looking at uh, new fingerprints, DNA uh, technology, and uh, looking and following some of the, the people that might have been involved, names that have come up that kind of fit the description that was given at the time of, of local residents who had seen a particular vehicle in a, in a gentleman in the area at the time. So give me a sense of what happened in the days after um, the shooting there at the dam. What where, where did detectives go, kind of what rocks did they start looking under? Pretty common at that time, you know, 1989, there's 
you know, no cell phones, you know, uh, security surveillance in the area it isn't, doesn't exist. It's a rural area, you know, by, by the dam. So a lot of just knocking on doors, you know, who was at the dam at this time, residents along the road that came and uh, went from the dam. And so what we would call a neighborhood canvas kind of started. So started knocking on doors, uh, got an understanding of uh, the regulars that were known to fish the area. And if you weren't a regular, you kind of stood out you know, back in the back in that time and, and even now. And so they were able to get a pretty good idea of a gentleman that was last seen there, uh, the vehicle, he'd been camping there for a while and um, developed a, a person of interest, but with no name, just a description, a physical description of this person had been seen in the area, um, seemed to be weathered, if you will, had a couple of days worth of hair growth on his face, longer hair, uh, greasy, it was described as being greasy, slicked back. And um, then also that uh, he had what they believed was it was described at the time was a, a later model uh, station wagon, maybe an Oldsmobile or a Ford Pinto style, uh, brownish red, maroon kind of coloring, depending on who you talk to with wood grain paneling. So from the neighborhood canvas talking to witnesses who had seen this gentleman, they had a pretty good idea of, of what they were looking for. It was just a matter of who might fit this and, and where this vehicle might be now. Did detectives ever find anybody that witnessed the shooting or just kind of witness the area and somebody that Correct. Just witnessed, stood out? Just witnessed the area. Yep, nobody was uh, on scene. Nobody has come forward to say they heard gunshots. Nobody was you know, around to say that they saw the vehicle uh, leave this uh, Pinto you know, station wagon uh, type vehicle. I was seen for several days in that area camping uh, when law enforcement arrived on, on scene and were shown where the vehicle had been camped. It, it was gone in what appeared to be, you know, tire marks from someone leaving in a hurry. Um, some might refer to it as a burnout or a peel out. And so that kind of was consistent with, you know, that's probably our suspect here. Somebody someone, that had a reason to get out of there. Get out of there real quickly. quick. But again, nobody saw the direction the vehicle, you know, traveled uh, after leaving the, the main road there. But again, everybody um, had knowledge that this person was in the area, had some sort of interaction. Hey, how you doing? How's the fishing? You know, type conversations and uh, only describing as being a little standoffish, um, but no, nothing that really stood out. Nobody ever got a name, um, just everybody had the same description of this person that was, was seen around this area. And that... I'm guessing that kind of made things complicated from the start. It did. Again, you know, back in 1989, that's a, a lot different technology than we have now with tracking people down. So uh, uh, a BOL, be on the lookout, was was broadcast for um, that type of vehicle, late uh, late 70s model, uh, early 80s model, uh, Ford Pinto, maroon, uh, wood paneling, uh, as well as uh, you know, working with the uh, Secretary of State to try to find vehicles that match that description and tracking those people down, you know, all, all the way up to the UP, you know, and there were uh, cases uh, uh, that I was uh, looking at here when I opened up the cold case um, that they went to Calumet area to track down, wow. you know, some of these vehicles, Midland, down, you know, anywhere that they really could find a description of a vehicle or a registered vehicle matching that description. Um, they tracked down leads and just kept coming up empty-handed one after the other. And that's kind of been the story of this case is several people of interest, several leads, but they don't lead really anywhere. Correct. Yep. A lot of, you know, uh, 
tips, lots of tips come in, hey, this person has been talking about it, this person might know, and, and when you follow up on it, and it might be a, uh, have been a different crime that they you know, thought they were talking about, or it was just a look-alike, oh, I think this might be my neighbor, Bob. Well, you go talk to Bob, and Bob has an alibi, or some of the people of interest actually were either in jail or prison at the time, so it couldn't have been them. So a lot of leads and a lot of just... Um, coming up empty-handed, you know, with anything uh, to substantiate any of the tips or, or um, investigative leads. And that's kind of why this case has been classified as a true cold case. Yep, true cold case, true whodunit. You know, they're usually, uh, in, in these cases, you have a good idea of who might be involved, and it's just a matter of getting that evidence together to really, you know, pin it on them. And this is just one of those, there's, there's good evidence of, of how the crime had occurred, but who did it. There's just not a lot at this time. And what we're hoping here is, is with the new advancement in, in some of our technology, you know, uh, fingerprints, uh, DNA, if we can get resubmittals on some of those things collected at the scene, maybe we can get a, a connection, you know, with the, with the new um, technology available with DNA and, and fingerprints. Because it sounds like you guys have a good amount of physical evidence available in this case. It's what that physical evidence hasn't led to that's kind of correct well it's, it's what part. it's what the you know the biological evidence mm. of the physical evidence uh, you know was there so now uh, you know whether it's you know hair that was found there or fingerprints or you know uh, blood whatever it may be how significant is that for what we're able to to use it for it will be a big question so yeah, physical evidence, there's, there is a bit, but what we can obtain from that physical evidence is, is a different uh, aspect. You know, they have recovered some shell casings, you know, from the scene. Um, but again, what was on that shell casing, probably not a lot, knowing, you know, how long ago it was. But what you can get from that evidence in 2021 is a lot different than what you could get from it, say, substantially, in 1989. Yes, substantially different. And that's, I think, where ultimately a lot of these cold cases do break is the new technology and, and what we can get from it. Um, it and just that, you know, the odd person cleaning out their closet and, and finding an old gun and turning it in and saying, this was my uncle's, this was my grandpa's, or, you know, whoever it was. And now the police run that gun just to check it in. And, and guess what? You know, it, it's going to come back to... You know our case or someone else's case or deathbed confession or you know whatever it is a, a fingerprint on a piece of paper that comes back and and we talk to to that person and oh yeah i was there i saw you know mr skamelka you know two days before and he was having you know uh, a good time fishing camping whatever it was and you know doesn't seem like there was any connection or any uh, concern within the family that this was anything other than just a, a horrific you know, uh, tragedy and, and uh, that, that he was targeted or, you know, no other aspects uh, within this case say anything, but he was just at the wrong spot at the wrong time. Essentially random. Random. Do you think it will be technology that solves this, somebody coming forward or a combination of both that will help you guys answer the questions you still have? I think it will be the technology that really cements what we have already there you know it's going to put pressure back on maybe one of those people of interest and then make them a suspect and then we can you know delve into there um you know here we are like I said 32 later so a lot of people you know have passed or you know aren't uh 
who won't remember as, as well what happened, you know, 32 years ago. So um, I think it will just be a matter of just getting, you know, a, a, a lucky break, you know, it, whether it's technology or, again, whether it's one of those people coming forward. I think at this point, the only person uh, that has knowledge, true knowledge of what happened is, is the murderer themselves. Uh, everybody else, the, the extent of interviews that have gone on and trails that have been tracked down with vehicle ownership and acquaintances and the vehicles being sold. Well, I'm going to go talk to this person. When did you buy this? Well, I bought it, you know, a full month before, you know, the, uh, the incident happened. So we know that that vehicle can't be involved. And, you know, we know that the detectives at the time uh, did extensive legwork to really get out in front of this and just came up just came up empty even though a lot hasn't happened say in the last 10 15 years it sounds like it was exhaustive at the start they went down every hole and turned over every rock that came they did their at, way at, with the, at their disposal at the time you know the crime lab came out uh, obviously the process the scene BOLs were put out uh, put out for the subject description asking hey does this person fit uh, the weapon style use is anyone familiar with that type of weapon being associated with you know, any known criminals, um, uh, you know, the vehicle itself, you know, they just, they literally tracked down every lead across the state really to try to get an idea of who can we narrow in on and, and just kept coming up short. How much would you like to solve this case? This is when he said it's just kind of sitting on your desk right now that hasn't, it is, hasn't like had it, a lot of movement. It hasn't, and, and it's always one of those that um, you always want to get closure for the family you know, in whatever manner that is. And if you can bring that closure in some source, some uh, understanding of why or an understanding of, of who had, had done this, um, I would think that that's what families want. And I know uh, Mr. Skamelka's son is, you know, older now. And uh, if not the same age as his dad was when he passed away, you know, pretty close. And for him to be able to, to get that uh, for himself, I think would be a great feeling for the state police, knowing that we were able to do that over 32 years of work, you know, from detective to detective. Anything else you'd like to add or anything else people should know about this case? As always, you know, if you have any information or if, if you are that person that has knowledge and, and are ready to come forward, you know, by all means call the state police post uh, Cadillac and uh, ask for myself and, and I'd be happy to, to speak with anybody that, that has information on it. Um, but yeah, at this point, it, it's, it's truly just a, a whodunit and, and uh, tracking down any viable uh, leads that we may uh, come across from this uh, opportunity to speak about it and as well as waiting on the, hopefully the new technology and, and DNA uh, results there to, to give us something new. What would it take for you guys to get another run through the system on some of that DNA or some of the biological evidence that, Ma that's making there. sure that it's viable you mm -hmm. know our system unfortunately right now is just is overloaded with DNA and so we really have to have a viable um, DNA source to be able to compare so it's just a matter of making sure that over the 32 years that we have a, a good sample to submit and uh, that's just a matter of getting with the lab and, and, and having them take a look at it and say yeah we can retest mm -hmm. you know articles A, B, C, and D and, and go from there. Get something that kind of moves you guys to the front of the line. Yes. Moves, moves the DNA to the front of the line. Yep.
yep, and then hopefully match anything that might be in the system, uh, or even that, you know, um, disqualify anything that's in the system, saying we know that it's this blood came from, you know, uh, the victim themselves rather than an unknown or this hair that we found is actually, you know, not associated with any of the suspects. That, that will be a big aspect of really the DNA not only helping solve, you know, how it's associated, but also help say it's not associated so we can kind of scratch that off the, the list of things to look at. And that was Detective Sergeant Doug Bauman, who's the lead detective on the case. John's family has also endured a decades-long wait for answers about what happened at the Reedsburg Dam. I sat down with John's son, Philip, at his home in Midland. Philip still has plenty of pictures of his dad hanging around his home. That was him when he was a young boy. He, matter of fact, he grew up right down the road here in the river. I asked him about the moment his family first learned the news. Kind of a freaky situation. State police come down to said what happened at my ma's, and we went down there. And of course, then he fingerprinted all of us and made sure that we had nothing to do with it, you know. And it was just like a big, big surprise, like something you hear on TV you'd never think happened to you, you know. Tell me about your dad. Oh. What do you remember? He loved everybody. You know, he, if anybody needed help with something, you know, food or anything, he always, he used to take runaways in where he'd make sure that he had a place to stay if they come in, you know. Always helping somebody in some way, you know. And just enjoyed life. What do you remember about the days after? The days after? Just how you were feeling, what family was like? I was so stressed out. I had anxiety so bad. And I just kept thinking, you know, they got to catch this guy. And no one really knew where to look because the DNR officer uh, didn't even give him a ticket. And I guess the guy was what I was told is illegally camped right there at Reedsburg Dam. And the guy just never gave him a ticket, never even found out who he was. And so we were like, wow, why would it was me? I'd have got a ticket, you know? It was just stressful and really bad. I seen my mom get like old overnight. It was really not good. Were you thinking right away that they were going to solve this? I was hoping they, they would. Catch somebody? Yeah, I was hoping they would. They had a description of a car, but we got to Midland, you know, stopped the sheriff's department when we come back from up north. and. They didn't even know nothing about it. They didn't even have it on the air. I guess back then, I don't know how far they talked to people, but it was like, wow, you guys don't even know about it? You know, this guy could be anywhere, you know? And so did police come to you guys in Midland or was that a different location that they came and told you? No, in Midland is, okay. is where they come and told us. Okay. I was living up the road not too far and we, my mom's house was on Freeland Road and that's when he came over there. So tell me what your dad was doing up there. Well, in he was uh, right on the bend of the river, uh, Reedsburg Dam, doing something he always liked to do, was fishing. And that's what he'd do, and he'd just kick back and relax, up fishing, enjoying his time away. Was there anybody that, you know, those days that you thought, or did your dad have any enemies, or did you have anybody thinking of somebody that would Well, you know... This? I don't really think Dad had any enemies, but then again, he never told me anything, you know. Like the guy that he sold the bar to, and uh, otherwise than that, I really never know of anybody that even ever argued with him. I mean, he got along with everybody. So what's going through your mind 30-some years later as we're approaching another well, year without... thinking hopefully they solve this, you know, and I was hoping it would be done before my mom died. 
but she got dementia really bad and she didn't know even who I was the last two years until I told her and she just fell right, right downhill. She just, my sister Pat was with her and she just laid over and went to sleep and never woke up. That had to be hard watching her go without knowing what happened. Yeah, because she, she, for so many years, well, they're going to find out, you know, and we were hoping it would, but it just never did happen. Philip says he's learned to live with the pain of losing his father, but the wait for answers hasn't become any easier. I've learned to live with it now. I mean, it was really bad. I mean, I, I was stressed out, you know, just like when they said that, uh, you know, when you go to the funeral, look for anybody you don't know, because sometimes the people will show up to a funeral that actually did it. So, I mean, don't believe, I think I was, I was checking everybody out at the funeral. And, but you were looking for anything. Maybe. I was I was looking for somebody that I didn't know, you know, somebody that even matched that description, but nobody there. State police, when I was talking with them earlier today, said this is a true cold case. Yes. They don't have a lot to go on. No, even the cigarette butts, uh, DNA, they couldn't get that off it, is what I was told, because they're too old, for one thing. With where this case stands and where we are, you were telling me you're getting older, too. What would it mean to have that answer? Oh, it'd be great. I'd like to step in the ring with the guy myself, but you know, we all know that that's not going to happen. But uh, it would be fantastic to see something really severe happen to him. You know. Kind of tell me, you know, what that waiting is like as as a son. You know. Well, you know, know I've I've learned to live with it, so yeah. I don't really think about it as much as I used to because it stressed me out too bad. And so now the only time is when, you know, somebody will ask me, hey, uh, did he find anything about your dad's case? And you know, you think, well, no. But it used to really bother me really bad. But, um, you know, like I said, I've learned to, to live with that now. You guys still want answers? Oh, though. definitely. We want answers. How old were you when your dad was killed? <laughs> oh, Jesus. I'm 65 in July here now. And so, um, deduct that from there, I guess, yeah. 31 years. Yeah. So. Do you think back to some of the life events, birthdays and anniversaries that he's, he's, he hasn't been here for? Oh, yeah, Christmas is really hard. I don't even really care about Christmas anymore. You know, it's just another day, you know. Because dad's not. Yeah, you know, it, it was... It was one of them things where, you know, it's a family thing and no, just not. Anything else you'd like to add or anything else people should know? I mean, you know, if somebody knows something. Yeah, if anybody out there knows, someone knows, someone knows who did it. He's, he's had to talk to somebody. You know, if you, if you know, call somebody, call state police. Call, call me, call me. I don't care, get a, you know, get a hold of somebody, 9 to 10 News. Uh, just let somebody know. Somebody actually knows something out there that they're not saying. And that's, it, 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 there's no doubt about it. He, he has told somebody. Most people like that, the detectives say, end up bragging about it sooner or later. And that's usually their downfall. Well, he's been pretty hush-hush so far. There are, maybe he's threatened people, say, you open your mouth, maybe you're next. Who knows, you know? It's 30-something years later, all you guys want yep. is just to know. Just to know. Get him what he needs coming to him.
Detectives told me this case is cold. There have been very few new leads in recent years. They welcome any new tips that may help them solve it. If you have any information, you're asked to call Michigan State Police in Cadillac at 231-779-6040. Thank you for listening to this episode, and be sure to join us next month as we dive into another unsolved mystery from right here in northern Michigan. You can also listen to other episodes of our unsolved series wherever you get your podcasts. For 9 and 10 News, I'm David Lydon.